morning, friends. I love the book of Hebrews. Um, we, uh, as you know, uh, studied through that book a few years ago, and um, it has always been uh, such a, a rich source of encouragement, um, hope, strength, uh, and uh, hearing it read again this morning just reminded me of why I love that book so much. So if you, if you struggle to understand the Old Testament, read the New Testament book of Hebrews, and it will go a long ways to helping you understand uh, all that's involved in the, the Old Testament. The uh, text that we're going to be covering this morning is Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. I encourage you to turn there with me. It's a, it's a powerful text, and it seems that any text that we turn to is a powerful text. But uh, this particularly seems to be one that is pertinent to us today, to our circumstances. I don't know if you paid attention to the direction of the liturgy so far and the songs we were singing, the um, scriptures we've read, and prayers we've prayed. Uh, but uh, I think if you're like me, the things that we've just participated in have had some significance concerning our lives and the, and the things that we face in our lives. I don't have to tell you this, but I'm going to. Um, you and I don't know the future. And this is uh, the source of much concern and fear and trepidation, anxiety uh, to many of us. And, and the, today's passage, I think, is, is a, a wonderful place to be reminded of um, our Savior who does know the future. And not just knows the future, but planned the future. And so I'm anxious to, to preach this to you this morning because I think it's, it's such an encouraging text. So let me read it to you. And uh, don't get distracted here by the severity of the text. Uh, hang with me if you would. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now you can go, wow, that doesn't sound all that encouraging to me. <laughs> but uh, like I said, bear with me. I think that you'll see that, that uh, there's really good news in this text for you this morning, you specifically. And I've, I've divided the text up in three parts. First, divine determination. Second, human intimidation, and thirdly, sovereign orchestration. First of all, let's look at divine determination that we see in this text. It's, it's obvious, isn't it? He uh, was walking ahead of them. They were kind of hanging back. He was out in front. 
And knowing what was to come, it's interesting that he wasn't kind of tagging behind them and they were walking, but no, he was in the front of the pack uh, or maybe way out in front of the pack leading his small band of followers, 12 of them at this point, uh, to Jerusalem where all that he just said in verse 33 and 34 would take place. We have divine determination. They were amazed at his determination, in fact, if you see that in verse 32. In Luke chapter 9, um, the doctor says this, when the day, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was determined to get to Jerusalem, not just because of the great Passover feast that was about to happen in Jerusalem, not because it was the biggest, most entertaining city on the planet at the time, but because of what he was going to accomplish just on the outskirts of Jerusalem in a matter of weeks from the time of this uh, record. So he, he wanted to get to Jerusalem at just the right time, um, in just the right way. And as we have studied in Mark, and we also saw in the Gospel of John, if you remember, Jesus was on a mission, wasn't he? He, he came to accomplish something specific. Nothing was going to get between Jesus and the cross. Nothing was going to distract him, not fame, not fortune, not even fear, as those things easily distract us. There was nothing involuntary or unseen, unforeseen, I should say, in Jesus' death. It was the result of his free, predetermined, and deliberate choice. This is stunning to me, maybe even to you. Uh, I have a hard time going to the dentist, right? Um, but Jesus here is out in front of the pack, determined to get to the place of his death for our good. Uh, what meticulous attention to detail we see here. Before Jesus was born, even before Adam was created, before one star twinkled, in fact, God had determined the plan of salvation. Integral to that plan was his own incarnation, becoming human, his own suffering and death to pay for the sins of humanity, including every person in this room. And so the death of Jesus was not some kind of avoidable tra tra tragedy as if he could have played his cards differently and there might have been a different outcome. Maybe he would have survived and become a great ruler living to, into his late 90s. No. Uh, it was a planned event from before the beginning of time. You remember John 12, 27. Jesus said this, Now my soul is troubled. And this was literally the day before he was crucified. Uh, my soul would probably be troubled. But he said, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come for this hour. Jesus knew all along that he had come for this very reason, to get to Jerusalem on the Passover of this particular year. So Jesus didn't miscalculate any aspect of his ministry uh, or his earthly plan. He knew exactly what the responses would be of those who were listening to his preaching or how people would respond to his discipling, including Judas's response. Uh, he knew what effect his miracles would have on people. Um, 
He knew it all, exactly. But Jesus continued forward. He set his face to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to move him. Every aspect of his life, every aspect of his death was prophesied many centuries before it happened. So let me ask you a question. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 that God spoke to our fathers, the the prophets, um, in days gone by. What do you think God spoke to those prophets? Hundreds and even thousands of years prior to Jesus' birth. What was he saying to them? God spoke to them. What was he saying? (laughs) The reason that Jesus was able to make specific and precise predictions about his death, like we read here in Mark 10, and about his resurrection, was that he was the one who provided the information to the Old Testament prophets. Jesus was the one speaking into their ear to write what they did. Turn with me, if you would. Keep your finger in Mark. Turn with me back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. And let me read for you a, a little bit of this text. Isaiah 52, verse, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they had not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as the one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had no, done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted as righteous." And we shall bear, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I would divide with him the portion of the many, 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We know who that was written about, don't we? Jesus Christ. How many years before Jesus was born was that written? 700? 1,000? Who told Isaiah to write those things? The one who hung on the cross told him to write those things about himself. That, that's stunning to us, isn't it? It is to me. So, so Calvary, we see from our text back in, in Mark, you might turn back there with me. It, Calvary is the only solution to the chaos of sin. It had to happen. And so it did happen. Notice that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. <clears throat> he said in verse 33, See, we are going to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. The, the Son of Man was really a messianic title. It's a title that was um, associated with the coming Messiah, specifically found in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. And of course, this title highlighted the humanity of this Messiah. We know the Messiah was divine, of course, God incarnate, but he was also totally human. The, 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 the combining of sin, the, the, the uh, nature of man and the nature of God, we have this one, the only one possible to deal and stand before God in our stead, which he did on Calvary. This title, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite title. He used it 81 times of himself because what it did was associate him with the people he was coming to save. He was the Son of Man, not only the Son of God, but the Son of Man. He identifies with us. God actually likes us. Amazing as that sounds. And in verse 33 and 34 of Mark 10, Jesus describes the suffering that he will endure for the salvation of these people that he came to die for, that he came to represent, that he came to mediate for between uh, offended God and sinful man. So the suffering of Jesus was extensive, wasn't it? It went beyond the physical sufferings of Calvary that we read here in Mark 10. Let me just review some of them for you. He suffered betrayal. It says in our text, he was delivered over. Someone delivered him to the scribes and the priests. Who was that? One of his own disciples. He was betrayed. Psalm 41.9 predicted this betrayal, said that Jesus would be, would be betrayed by a friend. In Psalm 41, 1,500 years before Jesus was born. And of course, the amount of money that Judas received for that betrayal was predicted in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born. This was, was not bad luck that happened to Jesus. It was foreordained in the counsels of the Almighty before one light twinkled in the sky. Next, he suffered rejection from his own people. It says he was, in our text, verse 33, he was delivered over to the chief priests and scribes who were Jews. 
You remember what it says in John 1.11? He came unto his own, and his own what? Received him not. He suffered rejection by his own people. And it wasn't just the, the religious elite that rejected him. What did the crowds shout to Pilate on the day of his crucifixion? Crucify him. Crucify him. We want Barabbas instead. And then he suffered injustice. Verse 34 here in Mark 10 tells us that they mocked him, spit on him, and flogged him, and killed him. But like the converted thief on the cross said to the other thief, what wrong has he done? Jesus himself asked the religious elite in John 8, who can accuse, which of you can accuse me of sin? And so when you suffer what Jesus suffered, it's injustice. He never sinned, never did anything wrong. He suffered ridicule. It says he was mocked, shamed, despised. We know how the soldiers treated him, right? We know what was being said to him. We know what was being said about him by the chief priests. And then finally, of course, like we read here in the text in verse 35, he, he suffered physical harm to the point of death. We just read from Isaiah 52 and 53 that he suffered so much physically that he was unrecognizable. Pretty severe. And so if Jesus is so willing to suffer as he did for our sin, do you think he will be willing to save anyone who comes to him for his grace and mercy? That would be a resounding yes, wouldn't it? Listen to how the Apostle Peter describes this in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. For to, you this, for, to you, uh, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he, when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, Jesus was so resolute in his determination to get to Calvary that he didn't say a word in front of Pilate. Do you think he could have? Do you think he could have debated with Pilate over his innocence? <laughs> yeah. Do you think he could have defeated the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priests who were leveling accusations against him? Oh, yeah. But he kept silent like a lamb before it slaughters. So why was Jesus so resolute? Why was he so determined to get to Calvary? John Piper wrote a book about this, and his book is called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I would encourage you to read it if you get a chance. Uh, it's, it's out, I've actually, uh, I think we gave it away a few years ago, or at least recommended a few years ago for you to read um, in the um, approach to Easter, Resurrection Sunday. But the book he wrote was 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, and he lists 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. Here are a few of them. To absorb God's wrath. God's angry about sin. And Jesus came as our substitute to absorb that wrath. 
to forgive our sins was another one that Piper mentioned. To make us holy, blameless, and perfect in God's eyes. How how does Jesus' suffering make us holy, righteous, and blameless? Because the perfection that Jesus came to the cross with is credited to everyone who will embrace him by faith. You want to be viewed as perfect before God, which he requires, by the way? Embrace his son, Jesus Christ, and his perfection will be your perfection before the judge. Isn't that good news? Amen. To give us a clear conscience. Another reason he came. Your sins have been paid for. There's nothing held over you any longer. Before the judge of judges. There's nothing that he can bring up. There's no double jeopardy. (laughs) Every sin, past, present, and future has been paid. Your conscience should be crystal clear. Is it? Do you understand the cross? Do you understand Christ's work for you? To give us eternal life, the Bible tells us. To free us from slavery to sin, Paul tells us in Romans 6. To make us passionate for good works. This is why Jesus came and died for us. And many more that he lists in his book, but I want to focus on three uh, that aren't in it. Well, I'm not sure they are in his book. I, I can't remember, but these three are coming more from our text. To, fill, f- to fulfill Old Testament prophecy is certainly a specific reason Jesus came and prophecy concerning the Messiah. And you know, as I've just mentioned to you, the Old Testament is full of prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, concerning our Savior. Hundreds, literally hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Prophecies concerning his family tree, the region of his origin, his personality, his specific birthplace, his specific birth time. Those who knew the scriptures, like the scribes, knew exactly where and when he would be born. The details of his death, the details of his suffering, even his resurrection, all to the minutia of detail were predicted, were prophesied about in the scriptures. This is what Jesus said to a couple of uh, traveling disciples um, after the resurrection. Okay, so the resurrection takes place. The disciples are kind of disoriented. uh, And two of them were traveling to the the town of Emmaus. And Jesus kind of walks out of the bushes and walks up next to them and starts a conversation. And, And they become interested because this Jesus, who was not physically recognizable to them at the time, knew a lot about Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies concerning him. And they, were be, begin, they began to find themselves more and more encouraged. The more they listened to this guy, they didn't recognize who was Jesus, resurrected Jesus. And this is what Jesus said to them in Luke 24, verse 26 and 27. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Speaking to two of his 12 disciples, And beginning with Moses, now listen, beginning with Moses, what did Moses write? The Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Bible. 
Beginning there and going through all the prophets, all the way up to Malachi, Genesis through Malachi, the entire Old Testament, <laughs> Jesus began to interpret to them all the scriptures of things concerning himself. Wouldn't you like that commentary? Oh boy. We, we might have to re-preach Psalm 119 or Genesis if we would just have that commentary <laughs> at our disposal that Jesus reviewed for these two. And then a couple of verses later, Jesus said this to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. You remember I said this to you. What we just read here in Mark. I, I mentioned this to you, remember guys? You know, like... <clears throat> Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Man. Why was Jesus determined to get to Calvary? He just said it. I just read it to you. That Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. And here we are, the nations experiencing the forgiveness of Christ on this day in 2022. Evidently, it's working. Next, to secure the salvation of his people. Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. If you're going to turn to, in your Bibles to Acts 4.12, underline no one else. No one else would pull this off. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The only one, the only person that can actually make this happen is Jesus Christ, the God-man. Our salvation hangs solely on him and his work outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. No one else was able to accomplish all that was required to secure our salvation. No one else could be infinite and eternal to pay the infinite offense against God that the population, the entire population that the earth has seen has committed against their creator. Only an infinite being could do that, and Jesus so happens to be infinite. And yet, this infinite one had to be human so that he could actually die, because death was required for the payment of sin. Jesus is the only one that can pull this off, and so he was determined to get to Jerusalem. There's only one mediator we sing, and we sing it because Paul wrote it. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. He's fully God, so perfect. He's fully human, and so a legal representative of you and me. And then thirdly, to demonstrate God's love. Piper does mention this one, to demonstrate God's love. I'm just going to read for you a couple of verses, and I think they're so clear, it doesn't need comment. For God so loved the world... I guess it does need comment because some of you think he loved the world so much. No, 
This is how he loved the world, is what that means. He sent his son to die. That's what John 3.16 means. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes him should not perish but have eternal life. You like that verse? Here, there's more. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 7. He chose us in him. God chose us in the Son before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In love. Why did he suffer and die? Because he loves us. <clears throat> According to the purpose of his will, he redeemed us through his spilt blood. And then this one is not in your bulletin, so you'll have to add it somewhere. For the joyful results. This came to me late last night. For the joyful results. Why did he suffer and die? For the joy set before him, which we read earlier. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You know, you, you and I can get through different difficulties because of what's on the other side of those difficulties. Uh, we go to the dentist because when we leave, the, the pain in our tooth will be gone. Right? Th th this was infinitely greater. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? What was the joy that made it palatable to suffer the way he did? Jesus himself said in John 17, that it was being together with us forever in glory. That was the joy set before him. So those of you who struggle with self-worth, think about that for just a half a second. The joy that was set before Christ that allowed him to suffer Calvary was being with you through eternity. Next, human intimidation. Not just divine determination, but human intimidation. I get this from verse 32. When they were amazed at Jesus' determination to get to Jerusalem and, and accomplish the purpose for which he came, dying on the cross for our sins, those who followed, followed were afraid. They were petrified because of what he was saying. Um, the twelve, of course knew that they were traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. That's what all faithful Jews did for the Passover. They traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate as a nation the Passover lamb. The Passover, the, the, the great event in the wilderness. Actually, in Egypt, that freed them into the wilderness. And so every year they would celebrate this and, and sacrifice all sorts of lambs, which was directed by God and, of course, pictured the lamb that was to come. That's why Jesus, by the way, had to get to Jerusalem on this day. He had to enter Jerusalem with all the other lambs that were entering Jerusalem. And he walked into Jerusalem in the midst of them, riding on a donkey. So they, they knew that they were entering Jerusalem for that purpose, but in addition to that, they had this ominous feeling about the whole trip this is the third announcement of Jesus' sufferings that Jesus mentioned to them. And so maybe they're beginning to understand. Um, but they knew that 
there was great opposition to Jesus. They knew that, that the opposition wanted to kill Jesus. They knew that they were his followers and they stood in harm's way. They were petrified. What they didn't know, at least didn't understand fully, was that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be the Passover lamb. You remember what John the Baptist, how he introduced Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said it specifically with those words because there was many lambs of God who didn't take away but covered the sins of the world. But here John introduces him as the Lamb of God who takes away forever the sins of the world. And in that crowd were some of these disciples. They had heard it, but it hadn't registered fully. We read earlier this morning also from Hebrews 10.4 that all these sacrifices in the Old Testament were temporary and um, uh, ineffective. They, they, they were a temporary solution, not a permanent solution. And in Hebrews 10.4, it says that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. You heard that read to you this morning. But here comes the Lamb of God, whose spilt blood was perfect, was divine human blood that was able to take away sins for good to any who would come to him by faith. And Jesus mentioned this again to him in verse 33 and for, verses 33 and 34 because these 12 could not handle the idea of a suffering and dying Messiah. That's not what they had grown up learning. They had been taught their entire lives that when the Messiah came, everything would change, Rome would go away, the, the kingdom of David would be restored and they would be once again world powers as they were in David's day, King David's day. So this was a little bit different. They believed that he was the Messiah. They didn't understand the talk about suffering and dying. Um, so when Jesus announced on the way to Jerusalem that he, they were, he was going to suffer and die, it scared them. Big time. But this is fear, I'm saying, is, is common to man. So your sub-point there is the commonality of fear. We have the fear of the unknown that we just heard. And now I want you to know that this fear is common amongst us. Uh, we humans are finite not infinite like God. Being infinite, of course, he knows everything about everything, including the future events. And it's not this that he knows about them as if there's some other thing orchestrating the events of the future. He was involved in planning the details of the future events, all future events. And I know that's a difficult doctrine, but it's certainly taught clearly in Scripture. Um, and it, we are taught in Scripture that even though God is involved in all future events and the, the orchestration of those things, he remains sinless, holy, perfect, loving, kind, and good. And that's baffling to us. 
But indeed, it is the fact that God is good and that he plans the future. He orchestrates the future. But being limited as we are, we're finite, not infinite, uh, our limitations include the ignorance of the future. We all have plans for the future, right? But James encourages us not to get uh, too wrapped up in our plans because they may not take place, right? Uh, Who are you to say what you're going to be doing in this city or that, James says. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone a month from now or two months from now. And so we're ignorant of the future. From our perspective, even if we're meticulous planners, our next steps are uncertain, aren't they? They are. Uh, None of us would have planned the last two years of COVID, and yet it took place. None of us plans for illness, for financial difficulties. None of us really says, okay, I'm going to see what I can do to really get poor this year. That's not how it works. Things surprise us. We're ignorant of the future. And because of that, it causes fear in normal human beings. Uh, We fear uncertainty because it may include discomfort. These disciples were fearing discomfort. In spite of our planning, we face uncertainty. Have you figured that out yet? To, To hold your plans loosely? Which is why Old and New Testament tell us that the righteous will walk by what? Faith. As long as we are breathing, we will be walking by faith, not by sight, according to Old and New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.7, particularly Paul says to the Corinthians, For we walk by faith, not by sight. But once we see Jesus, that all changes, doesn't it? Once we see Jesus... We cash in our faith for sight because we'll be in his presence. As frightening as it is to walk by faith, we have encouragement to do so because we know one who, one capital O, who knows the future and orchestrates the future. And he's faithful and kind and good. We sing... Jesus strong and kind, why? Because he is, (laughs) that's why. (laughs) We're singing truth there. Um, He plans and controls the future for our good and his glory. We, We can trust him, we can rest in him. We can live in his strength, not our own, because he's strong and kind and good. John Owen, the great Puritan said this, We can have no power from Christ unless we live in the persuasion that we have none of our own. You want to know why we struggle in the Christian life as much as we do is because we try to be a little bit self-dependent much of the time. So let me ask you a question here. Uh, Friends, are you trying to navigate life on your own wisdom and your own strength? Have you lived long enough to know that that really doesn't work all that great? 
If you haven't, just pay attention and keep living. Try planning for every contingency will wear you out. It's taxing, it's unfruitful, it's ungodly, it's unfaithful. And so, like the author of Hebrews says, we look to Jesus, right? The author, the founder, and perfecter of our faith. Which leads us to the next and final point, sovereign orchestration. Divine divine determination, human intimidation, sovereign orchestration. Let me read for you again verses 34 and 35 and just pay attention to the detail. Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and will be condemned, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Basically referring back to Isaiah 53. So what we read here is the omniscience of Jesus Christ. The all-knowingness of Jesus Christ. Jesus planned these events, planned his own death to accomplish specific things in the divine plan of the ages. In order to guarantee our redemption, our forgiveness, our reconciliation with him, all these things, as Jesus said, were necessary in Luke 24, remember? And so he planned them and fulfilled them. They were necessary. Let me give you some examples of Jesus' omniscience if you one that thinks that he may not have been. <clears throat> Jesus knew the hearts of those he was preaching to, remember in John chapter 2? And so he didn't give himself to them. He knew their hearts were hard, and so he said, I've, I've said enough, I'm done. Uh, Matthew 17, 27, he told Peter to go catch a fish, and in that fish's mouth would be two coins. That's pretty specific. Uh, he knew the woman by the well of Sychar that had five husbands, and the, woman, the man that uh, she was living with was not her husband. A little shocking for her, I'm assuming. Uh, he knew that his disciples would see a donkey's colt on the way into Jerusalem that he could use to ride into Jerusalem that afternoon. And on and on it goes. You can read through the Gospels, and it's in every single Gospel, in numerous places. Jesus was omniscient. So, what does all this information produce for the thoughtful Christian? For you? Here's what it produced for me. Great encouragement. Great encouragement. We can know that God is for us. He's been for us since before any human was born or made. Uh, we, can, we can know that he is good, that he's kind and powerful enough to pull everything, all of his plans off to perfection. This assures us that once we embrace Jesus by faith, which we're all called to do, we're all commanded to do, our salvation is absolutely secure. Listen to this, please. God would not plan such events that I've described to you that that Mark recorded for you. 
God would not plan such events just to make our salvation possible. I really hope they get this. No. He planned this magnificent series of events to make our salvation certain. So we can be assured of his commitment to our eternal good. And this, of course, brings hope for our daily lives today, tomorrow, the next day. And so it's not just for our eternal good that God is concerned, but with our present good. We, we may struggle with fear and anxiety about the uncertainty of what we may face tomorrow, but that uncertainty is only from our perspective. God, on the other hand, is not uncertain about any of it. God has orchestrated our salvation, our sanctification, which is the process of living as a Christian, and our glorification, which will be our eternal state. He's not uncertain about any of it. The only uncertain people in the room are us. Paul is great help for us in this. He says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those God predestined to salvation, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you notice the tense of each of those verbs? Past tense. It's a done deal. <laughs> so uh, turn to your bulletin. And I want to have you review with me the song we sang earlier, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. It's got a nice tune, but it also has some pretty good words. Whatever my God ordains is right, we sang. And of course, we don't sing things we don't mean. Right? Unless you're a country western song writer, right? Or a singer. Whatever my God ordains is right. Do you believe that? You, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 sure, until I get real sick. And then, God, why me? His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. Really? He is my God, through dark, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. And so to him I leave it all. Next stanza. Whatever my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He's not promised you cupcake and roses, has he? No. He's not going to deceive you. And by the way, we shouldn't deceive those we're witnessing to about coming to Christ. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content whatever he has sent. His hand can turn away, turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. Next stanza, whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. Why? Because our God is good and kind. The one who has ordained all of this is good. 
Finally, whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. Friends, as chaotic as our world seems, the detail of God's plan for Calvary demonstrate more than anything that God is sovereignly orchestrating all events. To accomplish his purpose, to bring him glory and us joy. Puritan Simon or Simeon Ash said this, God's end in all his cross providences, this Puritan way of saying trials, God's end in all of our trials is to bring the heart to submit and be content. And indeed, this pleases God much. He loves to see his children satisfied with what portion he doth carve and allot them. How are you doing? So when circumstances in our lives are causing us distress, frustration, fear, anxiety, we should remember that our God is sovereignly orchestrating everything. If he's going to orchestrate the minutia detail of the death of his own son, you think he can handle your life? Yeah. He certainly can accomplish his purposes in each of us. So... Let's go out this morning trusting him, believing what we sing, believing what we read, believing what the Spirit of God is teaching us right now. Let's keep trusting him. Let's spend time encouraging one another to keep on keeping on. We need that occasionally, don't we? Especially when times get dark. We need some faithful friend to come alongside of us and say, remember, we have a good God who's orchestrated all things. Keep on keeping on. Believe that God is for us, that he loves us. Place our trust in him in all circumstances. Do not depend on your own sufficiency, but run to Jesus, this one, this sovereign one. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled by this text. We acknowledge that <clears throat> the uncertainty of life sometimes get the best, gets the best of us and we um, default to anxiety and fear. We don't want to do that. We want to believe. We want to uh, believe what's true and trust the trustworthy one, you, Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. We know that, that your um, plan for us is perfect will accomplish exactly the reason for your plan. The design is flawless. The design is perfect and divine in design. Help us lean fully on Christ Jesus, our Savior, through all things, thick and thin. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.